милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Since 2014, Ukrainian nationalism has been a focus of intense debate inside and outside Ukraine. But a central and often overlooked figure in its history is Dmitry Donsov, the founder of Ukrainian integral nationalism and the so-called spiritual father of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists. So who was Dmitry Donsov, and how did this erstwhile journalist, diplomat, literary critic, publicist, and ideologue progress from heterodox Marxism to avant-garde fascism to theocratic traditionalism? Here's Trevor Erlocker on Donsov's intellectual trajectories. Trevor Erlocker is a historian specializing in modern Ukraine and Ukrainian nationalism. He's currently the academic advisor, program coordinator, and editor for the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies and the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the author of Ukrainian Nationalism in the Age of Extremes, an intellectual biography of Dmitry Donsov, published by Harvard University Press. Here's Trevor Erlocker. So Trevor, you know, I think also when I first met you uh, and telling me, I, I actually have to admit, I've never heard of Donsov before, before I met you. Um, and I always found it kind of a curious, a really curious subject to, to do your dissertation on. It, this, this book seems like a, a, a second or a third book. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm curious, just to start our conversation, is how did you get interested in his life, in, in Dmitry Donsov's life and intellectual development and biography? Yeah, well, I suppose it started... Um... When, when I first got interested in, in Ukraine and Ukrainians, um, I, I had begun to study Russian uh, after high school, and I was working in a factory uh, where there were, uh, there were Russian immigrants, there were Ukrainian immigrants. This was in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and talking to them, I realized that they weren't the same nationality, that they, they actually didn't get along very well, that there was a sort of hierarchy uh, between them, you know, not just on the factory floor, but you know, geopolitically, they spoke different languages. Uh, and so I, I was intrigued by that. And when I finally got to, uh, to college, I went to uh, Portland State University, I started taking courses on Imperial Russia, on the Soviet Union, uh, and realizing that these were multinational polities. Um, the, my instructor was uh, Chai Insu, and so I started working on um, a thesis on Ukrainian nationalism. Uh, and in the course of researching that, I came across an anthology of um, uh, Ukrainian works in translation, and Dmitry Donsov was one of those uh, excerpts. Uh, and I was just really attracted to his kind of uh, aggressive, incendiary style of writing. Uh, I was interested in, in the extremes of, of Ukrainian nationalist thought. Uh, particularly because it seemed to me um, to be one of the principal uh, domestic and international challenges for the Soviet Union. Uh, so, you know, I knew I wanted to do an intellectual history. I knew I wanted to do a biography or a, or a micro history. And Donsov seemed to be a really good candidate for that. I mean, he certainly comes off as an as a incredibly colorful character, a colorful personality. Uh, who was Dmitry Donsov? Well, he's known... Uh, in the first place, as the intellectual father, the spiritual father of Ukrainian integral nationalism. Uh, this, is, this is the name that we give to the ideology of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN. Um, famous figures being Stepan Bandera, 
uh, even Konovalets, people like this, um, that have a kind of cult following in, in Ukraine today. So he's known as, as being the, the, the person that formulated these ideas, um, but he was also a, a lot of other things in the course of his life. Uh, early on, he was a socialist activist. Uh, he was a journalist. He was a diplomat, an editor of uh, some very influential uh, journals uh, in, in Ukrainian civic life, and um, also a, a pretty influential um, literary critic. Now, the title, your title, title of your book, uh, Ukrainian Nationalism in the Age of Extremes, it, it's, of course, is a direct reference to uh, Eric Hobsbawm's characterization of the 20th century as an age of extremes, extreme ideology, but also extreme violence, extreme politics, etc. So talk about this, this lay out this context in which uh, and how it relates to Donsov. Sure. Uh, so Donsov was born in 1883, uh, and he lived all the way up to 1973. So 90 years uh, covering the most uh, violent events in, in world history, you know, all through the 20th century. And he's really right, right at the heart of it being in Eastern and Central Europe. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about how an individual that's involved in, in Eastern European politics navigates these stark choices. Uh, between collaboration and resistance, between fascism and communism, uh, between Europe and Eurasia, Germany, Russia, the West, and the Soviet Union. Uh, and because of uh, Donsov's uh, biography, I get to talk about all these things, what he did during the First World War, what he did during the Russian Civil War and the Russian Revolution, uh, his engagement with Nazi Germany, and then his role in the Cold War uh, after after uh, you know, the Second, Cold War, uh, Second World War. Given the fact that you have this age of extremes and Donsov comes from a region that is directly impacted by, you know, war, revolution, refugeedom, genocide, ex pogroms, etc. He, he comes and he comes from a part of, uh, you know, Eastern Europe, U Southern Ukraine, that is a multi-ethnic polity. And, and you, you point this out particularly in his early life. Do you think that that context lends to him gravitating to these extremes? The fact that he he lived in a very a place of extremes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as he was concerned, uh, Ukrainians needed to adopt uh, the most radical uh, positions in order to survive. Uh, that's that particular geopolitical context. Uh, for him, it was a matter of national survival. Um, if they didn't behave in the same way as the Bolsheviks or the Nazis did, then they were bound to be destroyed. Um, and so for him, this means embracing violence as a good thing, you know, something that they should embrace in and of itself. War is a good thing. Action is a good thing. And you don't want people to overthink it. You want to, you want to appeal to their emotions. Uh, you want them to be willing to commit uh, crimes, to be cruel. Uh, all of that stuff is sort of built into his um, worldview by the by the 1930s. Does does this emphasis on violence and, and radicalism and it as a means of you know inspiring people in terms of survival? Does it does his thought also have that tendency that you see in both communism and fascism that violence and struggle becomes a tempering agent? It's about producing a certain type of you know more resilient figure. Yeah, yeah, he had a, a concept, uh, the Silna uh, Ludina, right, the strong man. Um, so th there is a project of uh, national transformation, of uh, spiritual transformation, where you know, you're supposed to be uh, creating a new type of Ukrainian, uh, not this old, weak, democratic, socialist type, but the Ukrainian of the future uh, that will be tough and hard. And, and willing to do whatever it takes uh, for the, the survival of the nation. Now, you refer to Donsov's nationalism as, as integral nationalism. Um, what, what is integral nationalism and how does it relate to him? Yeah, so this is a, a kind of old concept in um, 
political uh, political thought. Uh, it goes back to the the integral nationalists in France, uh, Maurice Barres, uh, uh, Charles Morat, uh, and also back to the Polish nationalists, the, the National Democrats under uh, Roman Domowski. Um, and basically, what it means is that the nation is the highest value. That uh, law, morality. Uh, humanitarian values, all of this stuff should be subordinated to the national interest. Um, and anything that that uh, sort of conflicts with the national interest, whether that's internationalism or democracy, uh, is a bad thing and, and should be somehow tamped down. Um, so that that's basically what it means. Uh, but the way that it's been used in a lot of the research on Ukrainian nationalism is kind of as a euphemism. So instead of saying that the OUN or Donsov were fascists, uh, as, uh, as others have done, they say, well, they were integral nationalists. And what integral nationalists are, are nationalists that don't have their own state, right? So you can't, you can't be a fascist uh, unless you have your own state. Now, I, I do use the term uh, integral nationalism in, in deference to this existing scholarship. Uh, but I think that you can be both an integral nationalist and a fascist. Like, in other words, fascism is a type of integral nationalism. Early Donsov is is integral nationalist. Uh, in the 20s and 30s, it becomes more and more fascistic. Um, but I, I don't think that this definition uh, that because Ukraine didn't have a state, they couldn't have been fascist really works uh, if we're talking about it as an ideology. Ideologically, I think it's uh, very, very similar to, to Italian fascism and to uh, national socialism in Germany. Right. Or even, I mean, I would imagine even fascisms amongst, say, ethnic minorities in Eastern Europe that don't necessarily have states. Sure. Like like the Ustasha, uh, all of these different groups, um, when they do come into power, when they do have their own state, they behave exactly like you would expect fascists to behave. Um, and so I, I just think that that's a bit of, um, uh, yeah, I, I would say it's a euphemistic uh, use of the term. Do you get analytical value out of it than, than just saying, calling him a fascist? Yeah, I think so, because it allows for a little bit more nuance. Um, I would say that like in the, in the early 1920s, uh, Donsov was, was integral nationalist. He was moving to this position, but he hadn't quite embraced um, ideas that, that we would consider to be like full-blown fascism where there's this celebration of violence, there's this um, idea that you know, authoritarianism is, is what is really needed for a strong state, that you, you need to have this absolute leader and so on. All of these ideas start to come in later uh, under the influence of fascist movements in other parts of Europe. Now, one of the things I really loved about your book uh, is that it's it's based in an irony or is it presented as an irony? And and I always love when irony is is there. And the irony that you put forward is that on the one hand, Donsolve's nationalist thought rejected, you know, internationalism, cosmopolitanism, multiculturalism, all of these things we associate with having a more international and global life, you know, and multi coming from a multi-ethnic culture, etc., Yet you show that even though he rejected all of these things, it's precisely because his life was very much rooted in these, right? Living in exile, coming from a multi-ethnic community in southern Ukraine, a multi-ethnic family, um, uh, being a, a, a nationalist in exile and having this cosmopolitan life, that the, his intellectual development is, is rooted in this. Talk about this this irony in, about Don, that's at the center of Donsov. Yeah, sure. Uh, so in his formative years, he's in southeastern Ukraine, what is today southeastern Ukraine. At the time, this was the uh, called New Russia, so a kind of colonial imperial space with all sorts of different uh, ethnic groups interacting. Uh, these divisions. You know, cut right through his own family. So his older brothers are ethnically Russian. That's how they identify. His father he grew up in a Russian-speaking household. Uh, but it is only when he gets to St. Petersburg for his university education that he becomes what we might call nationally conscious, right? That he starts to read Ukrainian books, that he joins a Ukrainian um political group, the, the Ukrainian Social Democratic uh, Workers' Party. 
Um, it's you know it's really interesting to think about how it is it is through one's encounter with the other that you you become aware of yourself as something different, right? Um, so this continues with his education in Vienna. Uh, you know, another imperial cosmopolitan metropolis. He gets exposed to all of these new ideas about nationality and nationalism in Central uh, Europe. Um, and then all throughout his career, he's totally reliant on international sponsors, on international networks, uh, foreign governments to do the work that he wants to do as, as a Ukrainian uh, activist. Um, so, yeah, this is all really typical of what uh, Edward Said is called the, the exile experience, uh, where because you are uh, sort of estranged from the homeland, that you, you're forced to leave, you compensate for that with this, uh, this nationalism, this devotion uh, on a kind of moral level. Um, and the more embittered you become uh, as an exile, the more extreme your nationalism becomes to compensate for that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's always this anxiety about globalization, about diversity, about being rootless. Uh, but at the same time, nationalism is also about inclusion. It's about being recognized as a member of the national community or the international community um, and at the very end, uh, you know, there's a sort of anti-communist international that comes into existence uh, where all of these uh, nationalist groups, they form the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, they form the World Anti-Communist League, and they work together to undo the communist international, right? Um, and, uh, you know, for this, I, I would also mention that I, I, uh, I call this cosmopolitan ultranationalism. Uh, and that's really coming from Michael Stanislavski's work on the early Zionists, um, where uh, it is it is this kind of cosmopolitan experience that allows people to think through these ideas and to take the extreme position uh, on the other end, right? the, the anti-internationalist position. So he's he's in his exile experience is formative, and this of what can you speak more about the international networks that he was a part of to be able to develop become an Ukrainian nationalist exile? So um, during the First World War, he uh, becomes a kind of secret agent for the uh, the Foreign Office of the of Imperial Germany, and he goes to Switzerland. Uh, and starts working with all of these other exiles from the Russian Empire. Um, Lithuanians, Poles, Georgians, uh, all sorts of different groups that are for one reason or another opposed to the Tsar. And the, the, the idea of this project, and it has to happen in a neutral space because the central powers want to present themselves as the liberators of Eastern Europe, right? Uh, that they are fighting this war against the Russian Empire um, with the, with the goal of creating an independent Poland, creating an independent Ukraine. Um, and this is actually good. This is uh, the kind of Wilsonian national self-determination idea. Um, but those networks uh, continue all the way up until uh, the Second World War and beyond, right? So he, he makes these connections with uh, powerful German academics, military men, politicians. Um, a lot of them go on to being high-ranking uh, Nazis. Uh, and those same networks uh, come into play in World War II, and then in the Cold War when they all go west uh, and and start with this sort of um, the the anti-communist project of the United States and its allies. Now, Donsolv begins as a, in his youth as a radical leftist, and here he follows his brother Vladimir, who is a Bolshevik through and through, uh, and then he ends as a radical on the right um and you know very much i mean it really does his life does capture that age of extremes his movement across the political spectrum so how do you how do you connect these two political extremes in his life because you know when you're in thinking about this political movement across the spectrum but also the different places in which he finds himself you know switzerland and and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and then eventually in, in, in Montreal, Canada, that you have many different Donsovs here, right? Do you see a, a, a continuum between his movement and his life from the extremes of political ideologies? Yeah, well, Donsov, of course, would say that his ideas never changed, and he always believed the same thing. Um, 
I don't think that's true. But if you if you follow it closely, uh, there is a certain logic to it, um, and he is always building off of where he was previously. So the the transition from his, the, the sort of doctrinaire Marxism of his youth to the fascism of his, uh, his mature years, his middle period, uh, I, I see a connection there. If you look at the discourse uh, leading up to the First World War and immediately after among social democrats, among Marxists uh, in Europe, where for one thing there is a revolt against positivism. So there's a rejection of this idea that uh, societies develop according to certain scientifically knowable laws, right? And, and it can all be understood in material terms. Uh, instead of that, they say, well, actually, will, power matters, uh, that sentiments matter, culture matters. Um, so there's a way of kind of breaking out of the dialectic of history, of, of going beyond materialism. And they're sort of flipping marks on, back on his head, right? They're, you know, going back to Hegel or something like this and talking about spiritual transformation um, and connected with that there is a reckoning with the nationalism the patriotism of the working masses right so all of these different parties uh, in Europe they they start to support the war efforts of their respective nations uh, in the first world war they start to incorporate national ideas national sentiments into their programs and they say that in order to really build socialism, we need to have a national framework. We need to appeal to the national sentiments of, of the people. Um, and, and you know, this happens in the Soviet Union too, with this idea of um, state-sponsored evolutionism, where you, you have to go through this nation-state phase before you can get to the international project. Um, and th there's another part of this too, where uh, there's a kind of moral relativism built into Marxist thought where every different historical period, every different group, every different class has its own morality, uh, but that doesn't really matter. Right and wrong doesn't matter. Uh, what matters is power and, and the struggle. It's just that Donsov, instead of talking about class, he shifts his focus to uh, nations and eventually to races uh, and says that History is the struggle of these groups for, for survival in a kind of social Darwinian uh, zero-sum struggle. Talk more about this, this, how he understood nations and then races and how that fits. It sounds like he made an evolution from focusing on the nation to moving into a more racialized view. Uh, talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so early on, uh, his idea of nationalities is, or nations, is that this is a political project. It's a civic project. There is an idea, uh, and then people kind of rally around that idea, and that's what the nation is. Um, as he is exposed to this kind of biological racist idea from a lot of German writers at the time, he starts to reconceptualize the nation as a biological entity uh, and uses a lot of these biological metaphors to talk about politics. Uh, so Russian imperialism, Russian messianism, uh, communism, these are diseases on the national body that need to be rooted out somehow. Uh, and Ukrainians have been poisoned by Asiatic uh, racial types. Um, and so eventually they need to get back to a more... European racial type, right? And, and even when it comes to his political opponents, he talks about them as being racially inferior and that's the true origin of their, their leftist beliefs or whatever. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting to, to see this kind of tension uh, in his thought between whether it's the state that creates the nation or the nation that creates the state. And he goes back and forth on this uh, throughout his career. And for him, what does it mean to be Ukrainian? Well, uh, to be Ukrainian means, uh, I think, in the first place, to be European, uh, to be against uh, Russia, to be against Eurasia, um, because these are two different civilizations that, that can never uh, have peace, right? Because uh, as far as Donsov is concerned, um, Russia, Eurasia, Muscovy, this is, uh, this is a despotic system. This is an anarchistic system. Uh, whereas Europe represents rationality, it represents uh, a kind of order of, of classes uh, 
other types of hierarchies. So to be Ukrainian is to be uh, in this sort of the frontier of European civilization, to be in this fortress. And, and how does and so, you know, there's a couple of things I, I'm kind of curious about how they're reconciled in his thought, because he does end up becoming a professor of Slavic literatures, right? Languages. So how does how does that more folkish notion of, you know, Ukrainian language, Ukrainian culture, uh, Ukrainian history, this more kind of primordial and imagined, uh, you know, not un anti-materialist notions of the nation fit into his thoughts where he's, on the other hand, stressing biology in his, you know, racial ideology. It's, uh, it's a bit of a contradiction uh, to talk about uh, Ukraine as a nation, as a biological entity that follows these, um, I, I mean, it's pseudo-scientific, but it is materialistic in a way, right? It's in the blood. Uh, as opposed, and that these, these are things that are parallel in his thought, as opposed to going back to Kiev and Rus or back to the Cossack Hetmanate uh, and saying that um, what really makes Ukraine Ukraine is its ideas. You know, so people can come from wherever. They can be Varangians or they could be uh, Romans. It doesn't matter. As long as they are uh, committed to the Ukrainian territory and this, this project of, of building a Ukrainian state. Um, so, you know, as with many things in Donsov's thought, there's a lot of internal contradictions. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, sort of paradoxical tangents that he goes on, but, um, yeah, I, I would say that, uh, towards the end, the more extreme he becomes, the farther back into Ukrainian history he has to go in order to find models for his ideal, uh, society, his ideal state. How was his ideas received during his life? You said he's a kind of spiritual leader of Ukrainian nationalism. Um, so who who is attracted to? Who did he influence? Yeah, at, at the height of his uh, power, of his influence, he was most influential with veterans of the uh, the struggle for a Ukrainian state uh, between 1917 and 1920. Uh, many of them ended up in POW camps in uh, interwar Poland. Uh, they were very bitter about their experience because the revolution had failed. Um, and they, they were attracted to his ideas because he promised uh, a sort of a, a return of the war uh, and, a, and a victory. Uh, but he was also very popular with students, with young people uh, in East Galicia, which is to say in uh, southeastern Poland. Um, so student groups, they would have uh, Donsov book clubs, uh, they all wanted to become the, the new Ukrainian strongman uh, and to implement this, this vision of, uh, you know, a, a really quite uh, aggressive, fanatical idea of, of Ukrainian nationalist politics. So, yeah, students and veterans were the main groups, um, but he was uh, very quickly identified as an enemy of the Soviet state. Uh, they wrote quite a bit about him being... Uh, fascist, being a charlatan, corrupting the youth, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and then after World War II, he starts to fall out of favor, right? Because the, the defeat of the Axis powers really discredits a lot of his ideas. Um, people that used to follow him turned their back uh, on his ideas because of the way that, um, well, they, they thought that he was an irresponsible ideologue that he had sent his followers off to die in war and, and then didn't really take responsibility uh, for that. Um, so, you know, in exile in, in Canada, he starts to lose some of his um, some of his popularity. Yeah, you know, it's it's his, the fact that he's exiled. And of course, he's not unique in this respect uh, of being a nationalist in exile. But, you know, on on the one hand, he's nevertheless removed from actually existing Ukraine. Now, if he remained in Ukraine, there's no doubt in my mind the Bolsheviks would have got him and took care of him. Um, but, <laughs> but given the fact that he's not experiencing what Ukraine went through between 1917 and 1945, or even 1914 to 1945, um, what are some key moments in that period that shaped him personally and intellectually? 
Uh, well, he actually was in Ukraine in 1918. Um, so the, this was the time when the Hetmanate, the, the Pavlo Skoropadsky's regime, which ha had German support, was in power. And Donsov was, was very well connected uh, in that regime. He was the head of the telegraph service, um, so in charge of all of their propaganda efforts um, domestically, and also brokered a peace with this, the Soviet state. Um, so at that point, he's still there. Uh, but then when all of that starts to fall apart, the central powers are defeated. Uh, there's a, you know, he's got a, a price on his head. The Russian nationalists want to kill him. So he has to go back uh, into exile. And he ends up spending most of the, the 20s and 30s in Poland. Um, now, during this period, um, it's all going back to that revolutionary experience where the state fails, the revolution fails, and so he has to find who to blame uh, and, and what to do about it, right? So he blames the leftists, uh, the Ukrainian leftists. He blames uh, Russian liberals, Russian leftists for betraying their supposed values, for being imperialistic. Um, and that's really what sets him on this path to, to go farther and farther right uh, in, in the following years. Another really important moment for Donsov's uh, intellectual development, I think, is the assassination of Simon Pelyora. Uh, Pelyora was um, a very prominent Ukrainian leader, someone who was in charge of the Ukrainian uh, state in, in 1919. Um, and he was assassinated by Sholem Schwarzbart in uh, in. Paris. Um, Schwarzbart was a, a Russian Jewish uh, anarchist who said he was getting revenge on Petlyura for the pogroms that happened uh, in Ukraine during Petlyura's time in power. Um, and the trial, which was kind of like a new Dreyfus affair, ended up being less uh, a trial of Schwarzbart. Uh, everyone knew that he had committed the murder and more a trial of Petlyura and the Ukrainian state. Uh, so Schwarzbart was acquitted uh, because of what had happened uh, as far as the pogroms are concerned. And this sets Donsov on an increasingly anti-Semitic path that, you know, he starts to blame the international media, the Jews for Ukraine's uh, oppression. And um, because Petlyura was a mentor to him, someone that he was actually quite close to, I think it was also an emotional thing. Um, when Hitler comes to power in 1933, this is another important moment uh, in Donso's life. Um, he gets his own journal that he has total editorial control over uh, and embraces this idea of a new Europe uh, under under the Third Reich. Uh, and this is, as far as he's concerned, the best chance of Ukraine liberating itself from uh, Soviet power, from, from Stalin. Um, after the collapse of uh, the, um, the Axis powers at the end of World War II, uh, again, he has to go into exile uh, and he begins again to change himself, to go back and kind of cleanse his past of all of, all of the, uh, well, politically uh, problematic associations that he had had uh, and, and rebrand himself as a Christian, as an anti-communist, uh, and, and manages to find quite a few um, supporters in, in Canada and the United States uh, that, that allow him to do that. So what is he doing in Canada? Talk about his life in Canada towards, towards his, the end of his life. Yeah, so he arrives in 1948 um, and immediately goes on a lecture circuit. So, you know, he he's goes out, he talks about how uh, Russia is the satanic dragon of the East, that what is really needed is a new crusade, uh, a preemptive nuclear strike on the Soviet Union. He even says that uh, if, it, if it destroys half of Ukraine but liberates the other half, then it'll be worth it. Um, so he is, you know, he makes Joseph McCarthy look, you know, pretty, uh, pretty sensible in a way. And, and his appearance in Ukraine uh, courted a lot of controversy. Um, his, um, his application for citizenship was debated in the parliament. Um, the press uh, ran pieces about how he was a war criminal, how he was a collaborator. Um, but uh, because of, of his connections with leaders uh, in, in the church, 
uh, Ukrainian diaspora and also just general anti-communist politicians. Uh, he's able to kind of overcome all of that and land a position at the University of Montreal teaching Slavic literature. Uh, so he keeps writing through through a lot of this period. He re-edits a lot of his old publications, uh, excising offending passages that are too anti-Semitic or too Nazi or whatever. Um, and then, you know, retires more or less. Uh, by this point, he's quite old. Uh, he's, he's living um, at a kind of cottage outside of uh, Windsor, I think. And... Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much the end of Donsov, but he continues to be a figure that is celebrated by all the Ukrainian nationalist groups, uh, e even even the different factions that that can't stand one another. They all show up to his funeral. They celebrate him. They call him a great philosopher um, and he, he becomes a part of the canon in, in a sense. What are some of the takeaways from Donsov's life and thought for the uh, history of Ukrainian nationalism? Where do we place him? Well, I would say that he's uh, he's kind of an aberration. Um, if if you look at Ukrainian thought up to his appearance, it's very uh, liberal. It's very left wing, very socialist. Um, they hated state power. They hated violence. They wanted to see the the working masses liberated and educated. None of that stuff matters to Donsov at all. Uh, he is more interested in power, he's interested in the state, he's interested in war. Um, and so this turn to the right that, that Donsov represents is, is really a break with the Ukrainian past. But I, I also think that uh, his life, his thought, it shows that Ukrainian nationalism cannot be understood in isolation from what was going on around it. That you have to take into account Russian nationalism, Polish nationalism, Zionism, German, all these different uh, national groups are involved in, in the Ukrainian uh, experience. So the context is important. And Ukrainian uh, nationalism was also very typical of what was going on in Central and Eastern Europe at the time. So, you know, the, the idea here isn't to single out Ukrainians and say, you know, gosh, how could they be so, so right wing, so extreme? They were just following the, the spirit of the times, uh, you know, and don't solve in particular. Uh, if anything, Ukrainian nationalism is behind the curve uh, and, and catching up to these extremist uh, right-wing ideas pretty late, uh, late in the game. Uh, the, the one final thing I would say about that is that um, Donsov, uh, he, he kind of, his experience, the impact that he has, it shows that you can't just have a spiritual transformation. You can't just have this top-down um moral revolution uh, and expect a nation to change unless you address the, the material conditions, unless you give people something to fight for. So, you know, a purely negative program, a program based on hatred of the enemy, um, that's only going to inspire a certain type of person uh, and only to a certain extent. Um, and then, you know, when you actually implement that, you're courting disaster. Um, the, the people that really followed Donsov to the end, most of them got killed and um, nothing became of that project, uh, e even to the present day. I mean, you know, there's an independent Ukraine, but it's not because of uh, Donsov. It's not because of uh, this particular ideology. You know, what, one of the things that that strikes me in your characterization of him is that I don't really hear a lot about where the Ukrainian people fit in his ideology. It seems like they're, if at most, they're uh, human material to be used by the state to, for the state to realize its own interests. So can you address that issue of where the Ukrainian people uh, lie in his thought, considering, in fact, you just said, you know, you have to give people like, you have to deal with the material conditions of people's lives. Uh, so where do they fall in, into it? Well, I think the way you characterize it is is pretty accurate, that they're just material to achieve a, a, some kind of ideal, right? Um, Donsov is, is not just an idealist, he's an extreme idealist. He doesn't want to hear about uh, concrete individuals. He doesn't want to hear about classes. Um, he'll invoke the peasantry and say, you know, like, this is, this is the true Ukrainian stock. But he doesn't really articulate a program, a platform that would appeal to them. And he's totally out of touch 
with what's going on in Ukraine uh, in terms of like the popular masses for, for this entire period. Um, so yeah, for him, it's, it's about, um, it's about ideas. It's about ideals. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, anything, anything, uh, where, where you have Ukrainian socialists, uh, talking about improving material conditions, uh, he rejects that as, well, this is a smokescreen for Russian imperialism. This is just communism. And if we follow that, then, then the Ukrainian people will be destroyed, anyways. Um, so, um, that that was that was his position for most of his uh, career. It, was he religious? Because a lot of the the his ideology sounds similar to other extreme ideologies of the time that have this eschatological kind of movement. Um, did religion play at all into his concept of Ukraine or Ukrainian nationalism? Uh, it did. Um, I don't know whether he was a sincere uh, Christian at any point in his life. Uh, early on, he was actually very anti-clerical, very atheistic, um, which was typical for, for Marxists. Um, later on, he continues to be uh, very suspicious of Christian morality, of the church, uh, but sees it as having a role in, in building the nation, in, in uh, the kind of nationalist uh, worldview. Um, and then as he ages, he becomes more and more, I would say, theocratic, uh, where he's going back to these medieval uh, models of, of state and society where, you know, there should be a, uh, a church that is, you know, that is a powerful uh, kind of caste uh, and then, you know, a warrior caste and then a working caste. Uh, and they should all be totally separated. And, you know, his idea of, God or, or Jesus or whatever is this sort of God of vengeance and wrath and war. Uh, and, you know, that people should embrace these ideas because it gives them strength in the struggle. It gives them strength uh, to, to go into battle, uh, to kill the enemy, to, to, to find all of the, the fifth columns and traitors in our midst and, uh, you know, have an inquisition. I mean, he talks about these things as if they're actually, you know, quite productive and, and, and good for society. Um, so yeah, by, by the time he's an old man, it's, it's all, uh, this, um, kind of extreme theocratic, uh, idea, but I, it's very hard to say whether he actually believed it. He knew it would appeal uh, particularly to anti-communists in the West, uh, once he got there. Uh, into the Ukrainian diaspora, which which tends to be pretty religious, um, but uh, you know, in his heart of hearts, I don't know. It, it, it seems to me like it was something very instrumentalized. Uh, here's another question: um, Did Donsov write or speak about the Oun and Upa, and and what did he? What was his opinion of him, of them? Yeah, so um, Donsov was never a member of the uh, Oun. And certainly not Upa. He was never uh, a fighter. Um, the Oyun leadership tried to recruit him. They tried to get him to join their their organization uh, as a as a leading member, um, but he always refused uh, those overtures. Uh, I think, uh, in part, this was because he wanted to retain his. Um, his status in Poland. Now, the, the OUN was an illegal underground terrorist uh, sort of group as far as Poland was concerned. Uh, and if he were associated with them, then he couldn't carry on his work as an editor of uh, you know, his journals. Uh, he couldn't live in, uh, in Lviv and in Warsaw as, a, uh, as you know, someone, someone that the regime didn't have to be afraid of. So that you know, he could just focus on his anti-Soviet project, which was more important to him, anyways, uh, liberating the, the bulk of Ukraine rather than East Galicia. And I, I would say that he he was pretty critical of the OUN uh, in the sense that he didn't think that uh, they had embraced his ideas uh, sufficiently; that they were too focused on uh, Poland, that they were not focused enough on the Soviet Union. Um, and that there were too many people in their ranks that were either liberal or, or socialist or whatever that, that um, he didn't think it was going to be the organization that would, 
lead the national revolution. Um, another question, um, you know, you mentioned that he is being memorialized to some extent in terms of streets being named after him, institutes, the republication of his works, collected works. Um, d- but does he, the question is, does he present a problem for exacerbating tensions between East and West Ukraine? Uh, in particular, the question is, uh, the questioner is asking, you know, in terms of the efforts to craft Ukrainians, Ukraine's national memory, uh, you know, under somebody like, you know, Volodymyr Vyotrovich, what what role does Donsov play in all of that? Um, well, he's not uh, a popular figure in eastern and southern Ukraine, um, despite coming from uh, what is today uh, Zaporizhia. Um, he's uh, someone that, that commands a lot more respect uh, in the West and, and to a certain extent in, in central Ukraine. Um, so if, if the goal is to create a national mythology, a national history that unifies all of these different regions, uh, Donsov is not your guy. Um, he, he just, um, yeah, I, and that there, there are all sorts of reasons for that. Um, that the Soviet experience being one of them, you know, Galicia is kind of a unique case. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say he's, he's more of an impediment than, than, um, something that would serve that project. Another question is his relationship to the other uh, integral nationalists, particularly coming out of France. But I'd actually like you to address this issue of how he plays into nationalists of the period in general a bit more, because you mentioned, you know, Zionism. And in the book, you reference the fact that he's, you know, kind of a contemporary, he's a contemporary of Zabotinsky, things like this. So how would you you know, how did you said he's in terms of Ukrainian nationalism, he's kind of an outlier. So where does he lie within the general nationalist thrust of the time? Uh, well, he's right in the mainstream. Um, his uh, his development is, is very similar to Jabotinsky's. Um, I, I would, you know, I'd also compare him to, uh, to Domovsky, um, various other figures from other parts of Europe. Um, there's this this tendency to move further and further to the right, to become more and more militaristic, more and more authoritarian. Um, and, you know, he was aware of all these people. He was uh, in contact with them. He was reading their stuff. And uh, I'm sure modeling himself after them uh, in one way or another. Um, so, yeah, does that uh, kind of address what the question is getting at? Yeah, I mean, I talk about this more and more in detail in the book. Um, but uh, I, I do think it's, it's very important to look at that context uh, and to understand that um, he's not just coming up with all of this by himself in a vacuum um, and, and just, just pushing Ukrainian politics to the right because that's like his personal project or something. A couple of years is going to be the 50th anniversary of his death. Uh, he died in 1973. Is Donsov still with us? Uh, I, well, I'd say yes and no. Um, on the one hand, uh, he, his ideas really fell out of, out of vogue after World War II. And a lot of uh, Ukrainians uh, all across the political spectrum wanted to distance themselves from him uh, or, or engage in a, in a critique of the, the impact that he had had on Ukrainian literature, on Ukrainian politics. As so this was sort of like a dark uh, stage you know, that, that we went through. Um, and in, in, in post-Soviet Ukraine, uh, he's, you know, he's still pretty marginal. Um, there aren't a lot of uh, outspoken Donsovists uh, in, in Ukrainian politics and society. Um, no, no Ukrainian political party that models itself or, or, or regards him as a kind of founding father has you know, been able to get more than 5 or maybe 10% uh, of the vote. Uh, but at the same time, you know, he's been canonized and you can find uh, streets named after him in every major Ukrainian city. You can find monuments to him. There's a, a Donsov uh, scientific ideological center that is reprinted, uh, you know, a 10 volume collection of his works. Uh, he's taught in departments of literature and philosophy and political science in Ukraine. Uh, and there have been some pretty prominent people in, in Ukrainian politics who uh, admire him a lot. Uh, Serhii Kvit is an example, who was the uh, Minister of Education for a while. Um, 
other figures, uh, Dimitra Yarosh, uh, you know, with Pravi Sektor, figures like that. And so, you know, these ideas are still there. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I would say that it's, it's, it's yes and no. So would you say that, I mean, it sounds like he's more of a, a cultural figure or a symbolic figure, because one of the questions that's um, uh, being asked is is his relevancy for right wing groups in, in Ukraine today. It sounds like he has very little. I mean, for, for, for some marginal ones, it seems he, he has some inspiration, but for the most part. Yeah, uh, I mean, right wing groups in Ukraine uh, cite him all the time uh, and uh, they see him as one of the great Ukrainian thinkers of the of the 20th century, um, uh, you know, particularly in, in their struggle against what they call uh, postmodernism or cultural Marxism. They they like to cite Donsov as um, kind of the the antidote uh, to that kind of thinking, which which they see as decadent and and, and all of the usual um, sort of right wing uh, positions. That was Trevor Erlocker. Trevor Erlocker is a historian specializing in modern Ukraine and Ukrainian nationalism. He's currently the academic advisor, program coordinator, and editor for the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies and the Association for Slavic, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the author of Ukrainian Nationalism in the Age of Extremes, an intellectual biography of Dmitro Donsov, published by Harvard University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Song I hate is the song I